Well, welcome. We're in the sixth week in our series called Wisdom, and I'd like to do something as we look at the text together. Would you get the, the Pew Bible out? For those of you who don't have one, or even if you do, it's page 531, and I want to read the text together. It's, and I, my, the title of my sermon this morning is Seven Things God Hates. Wow. We'll try to make it positive, but He does hate these seven things. So, in honor of God's Word, would you stand with me, and let's actually read the Scripture together, all right? Uh, read it together from Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, and you can kind of read it. If you don't have the ESV, you may have a few different words, but the, I'll read from the Pew Bible. Here we go. Let's do it together. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who brings out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. You may be seated. When God uses the word hate, we better kind of pay attention because sometimes we kind of innocently say things like, I hate these things. I was thinking of all the things that I hate. And they're not in necessarily order, but you're going to get the idea. I hate the fact that the Lakers are not going to the playoffs. I hate any time the Packers or the Bears beat the Vikings. I hate that any time Azusa Pacific beats Biola in basketball. And, and there's been much hate in my heart for many years now, recently. I hate when I miss a birdie putt. Some of you are going, give yourself, no. Okay, a par putt? Okay, maybe a bogey putt. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not ever close. Um, I hate when I am in line, in the express line, and someone has more than 15 items in their cart. I really hate when I'm going down the 101 and I'm trying to get to the 23 at 5 o'clock and that guy, you know who you are, pulls in at the very last second on the 23 and did not wait in line like I did all the way past Hampshire. I hate that. I hate it when I was in school and there was a group project and I do all the work and the other guy still gets the same grade. I hate when that happens. I hate when I'm working out really hard, I'm watching what I eat, and I get on the scale, and I've gained two pounds. I hate when that happens. Now, I'm sure you have some of yours as well. I hate when stubborn people never admit that they're wrong. No, no response to that. Okay, just checking. Because <laughs> the, they're going, well, I'm right, all right? Now, on a serious note, I hate the injustice of when any time a woman or a child is abused. And then, and a, a little closer to home, I hate any time that I've caused hurt to my wife or to my kids because of my stupidness or my stubbornness or my sin or you can fill in the blank. So I think we all understand that we hate some things, but God says He hates these things. And uh, I want to give you a background before we look at the text together, but when he says that, we better pay attention. And in fact, 
I think these represent categories. I, I'm not sure uh, this is an exhaustive list. In fact, he uses a, a little um, uh, a process there called six things, yay, seven. It's not because he was going like, I, I hate six things. And they go, oh, 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 I got to put this one in. It's actually a, a way of writing that is used in the book of Proverbs. In fact, in other sections, he says, I hate three things. Oh, no, four, I detest. It's a way of kind of getting your attention to perk up. And so we better take a closer look. But the takeaway today is, thankfully, we have the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the antithesis to all of these. And in fact, you're going to see throughout the, the context that Satan kind of embodies these things, and Jesus Christ is the opposite of those things. And in fact, as you look at it, he's done this twice now. In the preceding verses 12 through 14, he goes through the same kind of litany of, of things. And he also does something interesting if you're going to, those of you who are more poetic, you notice he's going to start with the, with the eyes and then go to the tongue and then to the hands and to the heart and to the feet. So he kind of starts at the top of the body and kind of works his way down. And so as we focus on this, I want you to understand that, that God's love and God's holiness and God's justice are all things that we have to keep in counterbalance. I've been telling some people, I've been, I'm pondering this theological idea. If God is all these things, holiness, justice, love, and you have like a big circle, it is very easy in our context, in our world today, to only want to focus on God's love to the exclusion of all the rest of who God is. So I want to make a disclaimer right up front. This is kind of more of, these are more of a holiness pass passage. We're looking at God as these things, the exact opposite of those. And if we ever did a study, it would be a very interesting study to see what happens if we only focused on God's love. What are the predictable consequences when that happens? Or only on His justice, or only on His omniscience, etc. And I think in this particular case, we're going to see holiness and justice as the primary way God is illustrated, but you're going to see also that He is the exact opposite, as I said, to these other things. So, it's kind of a checklist for us to look at. So, seven awful actions. The first one is haughty eyes, all right? Pride. Um, Proverbs 16.8 says, pride goes before a fall. I'm going to give you a ton of verses today. You're going to have enough time to write the reference, and then you can check it out for yourself. It's the idea of being full of yourself. Now, Three symptoms of pride that I see, because no one wants to say, yeah, I'm proud. Um, number one, answers for everything. I am always right. Number two, always being in control, that you have to be in charge, often is an uh, insecurity for the pride you have. And then this whole idea of being aloof is another way we show pride, because we just don't really care about what anybody else thinks. How is Satan described in relationship to pride? Check out the five I wills of Satan in Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Satan is the ultimate conveyor of pride. Jonathan Edwards said something interesting. Pride is the most hidden secret and deceitful of all sins. Now, why is God so, uh, you know, pr you know preoccupied with pride? Because usually the first and last thing, the take off the landing in a text are some of the things you've got to pay notice to. But I think what makes pride so singularly repulsive to God is that it contends for His supremacy in your life, doesn't it? Think about it this way. 
pride is in a different category of all the other sins. Where all the other sins lead you further away from God, pride is this heinous sin that attempts to elevate you above God. The other sins take you away from God, but pride kind of elevates you above God. In fact, what is God's response to the proud? James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5, He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And so, it contends for supremacy. Now, it's not going to end well. If, if, if pride's part of the, the card you play in life, look what God says about the proud. There's a collision course with God Himself in all eternity. Look at Isaiah 2.12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and He shall be brought low. Now, God has an interesting way of humbling us, and we're going to look at the antidote to all these in just a moment. So, I'll just focus on the negative for the first part, and then we'll, we'll, we'll land the plane in a, in a more positive direction. C.S. Lewis says this, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So, ultimately, proud's gonna, pride is going to affect your worship. Number two, a lying tongue, dishonesty. This idea of no truth, all right, no regard for the truth. And also, uh, the, the idea in the text here is this habitual, almost bordering on chronic liar, uh, deception. Uh, it was used of false prophets in Jeremiah 14, 14. Proverbs 26, 28, it, it harms you. It says, a lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattery mouth works ruin. Now, how is Satan described? Once again, Satan is the father of lies. Write that one down. That's John 8, 44. For wherever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so, no wonder those who are apart from Christ are, are concerned, they're, they're, they're confused because Satan has filled their mind with lies. Uh, a USA Today poll found that only 56% of parents teach honesty as a core value in their home. A Lewis Harris poll turned up the distressing fact that 65% of high school kids would cheat on an important exam. Uh, ADP did a, a background check on some 3.8 million background checks, and they found that 52% of the people lied on their resumes. And then this, this book that was pretty popular several years ago called The Day America told the truth. They report that 91% of those surveyed lie routinely about matters they consider trivial. 36% lie about important matters. 86% lie regularly to parents. 75% to friends. 73% to siblings. And 69% to spouses. Wow. You say, but we don't really lie, do we? I mean, we maybe fudge a little, but not flat-out lies. Well, you know what Mark Twain said about lying, right? He said there are three kind of lies, black lies, white lies, and statistics. And so, um, how, how, how do we lie? How do we lie kind of in our way? How do we shade the truth? Well, I'm going to give you three examples. How about exaggeration, all right? The fish wasn't really that big, was it? It was more like this. You know, the putt wasn't 43 feet. It was like three, all right? And we, and we exaggerate. Like the guy whose wife or the guy who, who got his credit card stolen and he decided like not to turn it in because the thief was spending less than his wife would have. So, yeah, a bit of an exaggeration, right? 
Uh, how about when we try to escape uh, a consequence? How many of you, besides me, I mean, I'm going to just flat out admit it, have ever run late to an appointment and you blamed it on the traffic? Come on, Chris and I are winning up. Now, if we would have woken up just a little earlier or let a little more time to allow for traffic, we wouldn't have been late. We kind of make those excuses. Like the four students who decided to go a little joyriding and, and uh, skip class, and they'd forgotten that there was a test that day. And so they go for a drive, and when they arrive at class, the student explains to the teacher, hey, we tried to get her, but we had a flat tire. Hmm. So the teacher accepts the excuse, and much relief, she says, okay, great, you know, we had a quiz day, so here, you can take it right now. They said, great. She goes, I want you to each go to the four corners of the room. Do not talk to each other. There's one question on this test. Which tire was flat? <laughs> Which tire was flat? All right. And then some of you are going, huh? All right. Third way that we sometimes lie is we tell half-truths, right? Uh, we don't want to hurt somebody's feelings, right? And I'm not suggesting that anybody does this, but on that truth-love continuum, speak the truth in love, I admit freely that I tend to be more of a truth speaker, and the problem with all truth is you leave an emotional wake of carnage behind you. It may be the truth, but maybe it's not exactly the kindest way of saying it. But then the lovers of people's soul, they just don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, all right? I won't mention anybody that I'm related to or married to that is kind of like that over, over on that side of the room. And so God wonderfully brought us together to balance each other out. And it, that reminds me of this other story. A man goes on a business trip, and he, he persuades his brother to take care of his cat. And his brother hates the cat, right? But he reluctantly agrees. And so uh, the brother calls in as he's uh, leaving the airport to fly home, and um, he kind of well, how's everything going? And, and the other brother that hates the cat said, your cat died. And that's it. He said, your cat died. He kind of hangs up the phone on the guy. So the man is like, what? And he's like just grieving and inconsolable. By the way, I think you know this has to be an apocryphal story because no one should be grieving the death of a cat, right? Oh, just maybe a dog story would work, but not cats. Anyway, so the next day, the, the brother calls the other brother and says, I got to talk to you about how you delivered the news to me. I mean, did you have to be so blunt? Another brother kind of exasperated goes, it's like, what am I supposed to say? The cat died. He says, well, let me give you a different way you could have said it. He says, I'm all ears. He says, well, you could have broken the news gradually. You could have said the cat was playing on the roof. You could say later in the conversation, oh, and, and by the way, he fell off. And then you could have said, and then, he, and then he broke his leg. And then when I came to pick him up, you could have said, I'm so sorry, the cat passed away during the night. Come on, brother, you've got to be more tactful. And then he changes the subject really dramatically. He goes, hey, by the way, how's mom doing? Well, she's playing on the roof. <laughs> we laugh about it, but we oftentimes fudge the truth when it makes us feel uncomfortable, when we don't want to hurt someone else's feelings, when it doesn't benefit us if the story was completely told. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood, murder. Now, wow, most of you go, ooh, cringe, like, that's a big one. And for most of us, we'd say murder isn't really, you know, part of our, our agenda, that's at least not that we thought of, you know, 
I don't think I've killed anybody. By the way, we can't get away saying, oh, we murder each other with our words. That's really an eisegetical observation, not an exegetical observation. It's not talking about murdering people with our words. It's literally taking innocent blood. We know God condemns that, right? Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by his blood shall it be shed, because we are made in the image of God. It violates what commandment? Six, there's ten, you know, the Ten Commandments. It violates the Sixth Commandment, Exodus 20, 13. And by the way, I confessed this last hour. Do you realize that there's two lists of the Ten Commandments? We all know about the Exodus one. Where's the other list of the Ten Commandments? Deuteronomy, you win. You can go out to lunch, wherever you want to go. All expenses paid at your expense. All right, Deuteronomy uh, 5.17 also talks about that. Who's, where's the first murder in the Bible? Cain and Abel, for, and it's actually a family homicide, right? Uh, what is Satan described as? A murderer. Look at this in John 8.44. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. So, what are the modern-day equivalents of shedding innocent blood? Well, I think any time someone dies, not at their own doing, right? I'm reminded of the time that uh, Katie's first boyfriend was killed in a car accident. There was an accident in front of him. Someone had uh, gotten an accident. He pulled over the side of the road. He was pulling out uh, the, the kid who had been hit in the previous accident, out of the car, and while he's getting him out of the car and laying him on the concrete, a drunk driver came through and killed him, and, and, and Nolan died, but the boy he pulled out of the car lived. Wow. Yeah, we look at that. Anytime there's injustice like that, we go, yeah, innocent blood was shed. Anything that ever happens to kids that is abusive, right, and, and they die or something happens to kids, Shedding of innocent blood. What's going on all over the world with the sex trafficking of women, the shedding of innocent blood. And the one that I'm going to just very gently tiptoe around a bit is obviously anybody who had an abortion. Now, I say that, and I'm, I'm, as soon as I say it, please hear me, because that one has probably affected more women than we're even willing to admit to, even in our own congregation. And thank goodness, God, in His great grace and love and redemption, offers forgiveness. And though that one may be the one that is a lightning rod that causes people to cringe, anything that when somebody innocent suffers, it causes us to be sad. And thank goodness, if you were ever the perpetrator of any, uh, anything like those things, where, where somebody innocent was really harmed, I think for Christians, one of the hardest things is to forgive yourself, even though you know intellectually God forgave you, but so hard to forgive yourself in that situation. And so, hands that shed innocent blood, number three. Number four, a heart that devises wicked plans. Well, I think that's revenge. Matthew 5, 19 says, for out of the heart proceed all kinds of things, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts false witness, blasphemies. The heart reveals what's going on inside of us. Uh, we know we're commanded not to seek revenge, right? Re vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But specifically, Leviticus 19.18, Romans 12.19 says, don't seek revenge. And there's nothing satisfying about revenge. In fact, anybody who's gotten, quote, revenge on someone 
usually there's an emptiness because it doesn't satisfy. In fact, unbelievably, those who forgive people who have wronged them deeply, that forgiveness is far more uh, healing than taking revenge. Um, in fact, um, it's interesting, there's an actual TV show on right now, it's run money, I think it's his third se- season, called Revenge. And uh, if you've watched any of the plot, and I, I can tell, I've watched across the audience, there are seven of you who just smiled, I know who you are. <laughs> and I, I've watched it too, okay? And so, um, in fact, last hour there were two casuals and they were just giggling, and I talked to them afterwards, are we the only three that have ever seen this program? But um, revenge, in fact, um, one of my, kind of in a fun way, my favorite revenge lines in all of movie history comes from that great film, The Princess Bride, right? And it's when Inigo Montoya says this, he says, my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die, right? He's going to avenge his father's death, right? And we can kind of laugh about that, but what is Satan again? He's the one who takes revenge. He's the plotter. He's the tempter. He tempts Jesus in Matthew 4, 3. He's going to tempt you, 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. And Satan's ultimate act of revenge, when did he think he was going to get back at God? He thought he had won when Jesus ended up on the cross. That was his revenge plan. And thank goodness God turned the table that the ultimate revenge plan became the ultimate solution for mankind for salvation. Amen? I I need to hear a little more. A little amen? amen? All right. Come on now. Number five, feet that run rapidly to evil. All right? So evil, this this premeditated act of sin. If the last one was more of an attitude, this one is more of an action, all right? And it focuses not on the thought but on on the action. And these are people who have no moral compass. It's like people who vandalize things, uh, people's properties. They don't steal anything. They just vandalize. That's kind of an act of evil. Um, Scripture says, in Romans 12, 9, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. It's not only that they run to evil, but they're running from the good things in life. Again, Satan is described as what? John 17, 5. He's described as the evil one. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Now, everybody has their own embodiment of evil, right? In a very bad sense of humor sort of way, you go, Yeah, that's my mother-in-law, the evil one, right? And you don't say that, or my brother, the evil one. But seriously, in our world today, evil, probably the the best illustration I can think of evil in our world today is ISIS and and the horrific atrocities committed in the name of religion, quote, unquote, is the embodiment of this kind of evil. Then, Number six, a false witness that speaks lies. That's perjury. We are actually going to the courtroom here. It's literally lying under oath. The SV translates it's who breathes out lies. Well, we know that's another violation of the ninth commandment, Exodus 20, 16. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Psalms 27, 12, uh, David felt attacked by Saul and his adversaries. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. Now, Satan is the ultimate false witness because he is also the ultimate accuser, right? Revelation 12, 10, 
For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. He is the accuser. So, how does he accuse us, Christian? You see, this is what he does. Satan never yells like this, does he? What does he do? He whispers. He says, you loser. God's not going to forgive you. If people really knew who you really are, you're a fraud. You have no right being in the church. Is God really real? Think about all the ways Satan creates confusion and doubt in your life or you see him at work in the Scriptures. What did he do in the garden? He tries to put a wedge, you know, between Eve and Adam. In fact, Adam does the ultimate, you know, deferral. Oh, the woman you gave me, that's the problem right here, right? Satan planted that doubt, right? So, Satan is, is the one who says, hey, is there really a God? You really trust the Bible? How do we get the Bible? What about suffering in the world? And all these objections oftentimes just, you know, formulate in our head, right? He is the great perjurer. He is the great accuser. And then the last one, one who sows discord or literally spreads strife among brothers. That's gossip and disunity. Now, some would say that this is the most important because it's the seventh in the list. Others would say pride because it's the essence of sin is the most important in the first half of the list. I think they're great bookends, and they're probably the ones where we take the most application from is the pride one or the disunity gossip one. But again, once again, look at Satan's character. He masquerades as an angel of light. He wants to make things to appear something that are not, and he always is in the mix. Satan loves to cause doubt and confusion. Look at James 3.16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. God hates gossip, Proverbs 20, 19. He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with the gossip, Proverbs 20, 19. And so, how can, how can Satan win? Well, just divide the church body. Just get a church to fight with one another, to not get along with another, to believe the worst about each other instead of uh, uh, assume the worst instead of believing the best. And so, we can see how when there's, there's disunity, the world says, huh? What's going on here? In fact, in 1 John, it says, they will know we are Christians by our love, not our political correctness. Whether we get all the theological do's and don'ts all checked off, they'll know that we are Christians by our love. Well, those are the seven awful actions. I'm so glad the sermon does not end here because we go home like this going, oh, boy. Thank you, Pastor John. That was such an uplifting sermon. So glad I came to church today to think about all the things that God hates Yay. Here's the great news. Let's flip the corner. Let's look at seven awesome antidotes. And Jesus is, in fact, the, the antithesis to all this. Now, I want to make sure you understand something. It's not just that we got to quit doing this and that somehow we kind of muscle up on our own and some moral imperatives that we've got to really do, uh, that we do it in our own help. Thankfully, Jesus stands in the gap, and He is the great example and the opposite of all things. By the way, thinking of kind of muscling things up, you know, recently I've had the chance to work out with a friend, John Lopez, who most of you know here, and uh, I know you think he's a very nice guy. I know him affectionately as my torturer, all right? Because I am telling you, when you got that weight hanging over you, you go, you can do it. I go, no, I can't. Yes, you can. Don't give up. And I'm like, 
I'm right there with you. And all he has is a little finger there, you know. Yeah, I'm helping. Um, and I think there are times that in the Christian life, we kind of feel like we're all alone trying to, to muscle up morally that we can do this. And the Scripture is replete with the idea it isn't us. We cannot do it. We cannot be perfect. We cannot do it alone. That Jesus Christ is the reason and the only way that God can live in and through us. By the way, the perfect, uh, just a little theological Old Testament diversion, just for, you know, 30 seconds. What was the purpose of the law? Why did God give us the law so that we could try to live up to do all those 613 things? No. The Scripture says that the law is our tutor to point us to the need that we cannot live that way. We can never make that holy expectation that only through Jesus Christ, through His shed blood on the cross and His atonement and the trusting in the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins, and that if we trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, then we have newness of life. Then He doesn't see us as unholy and unrighteous. He sees the righteousness of us. No, we see only the righteousness of Christ. Amen? Because we can talk about all these do's and don'ts. That's not the point of this sermon. The point of this sermon is where we're headed now, and this is Jesus who embodies the opposite of these things. So, instead of being prideful, what's the answer? Humility, right? Proverbs 15, 33, before honor comes humility. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others more important than themselves. Philippians 2, 3. In the, in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Matthew 5, 5. Jesus is an example of humility. Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Now, what's interesting here um, is this fixation on pride. If pride puts us in a position of opposition to God, then humility puts in a position of dependence on God. If pride stubbornly insists on carrying, you know, kind of our own cares on our own shoulders, humility is quick to cast our cares on God. Now, I was going to do in this sermon at one point during this week, I thought I'm going to pick one person to illustrate from our church to illustrate uh, each one of these points. And then I realized then 289 people would be very sad because I didn't pick them. But I am going to highlight one person, just one today, because as I've gotten to know this guy over the last you know, several months, he just embodies humility. How many of you know Dave Ireland? Is Dave, is Dave in the service here? Where is he? Is he? He was. Oh, he's in the back row there. He's humble. He's in the back. Say, you know. Dave, Dave is just one of those guys that I see just exudes Jesus' self-sacrifice humility. I don't know if you see all that grass that's out here. Dave did it by himself. No, he didn't. Um, like 40 guys over like four weekends did all that work out there, and um, Dave just brought truckload after truckload of dirt and just behind the scenes kind of prepping the thing. But he is a humble guy. But I got to tell you, there's something else. He doesn't announce too many things, but I'm going to announce something for you, that even though this humble guy is a servant of the Lord, 
He's a smart enough guy to get engaged to Wendy this past Thursday. Yeah. Hey, Wendy, Wendy, stand up. So there's Wendy. Man, you're blinding me with that ring. The other hand, there you go. Woo! So good things come to humble men, I'm just telling you. Nicely done. Nicely done. Now, the counterfeit to true humility is this kind of self-deprecation. You ever heard that someone, you know, someone says, oh, man, great job, blah, blah, blah. And you go, oh, no, it's all Jesus. Well, yeah, it's Jesus, but he used your fingers, used your feet, used your mouth, used your intellect, used your strong work. And so uh, there is kind of the self-deprecation that I think is a counterfeit. And the difference between true humility and self-deprecation is we're not a, when you're truly humble, you're not trying to tear yourself down. In fact, C.S. Lewis put it great. He said, humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. So fundamentally, um, humility is self-forgetfulness. It's, it's not thinking about, hey, it's not my agenda. Ultimately, then, I think humility is the, counter, is the opposite to pride because pride at its core is a worship issue because when you are lifting yourself up, Jesus Christ is not being lifted up. Number two, what is the answer to dishonesty? Well, I think it's truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. He says He'll give us the spirit of truth in John 16, 13. He says in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so, it's a reflection of our integrity. And we've already talked about how we lie, but you know, here's a little truth test. When you say yes to something, is your yes mean yes and your no mean no? How about are you honest and truthful by just owning the stuff in life that comes your way and say, yeah, I got to own that. Yeah, I kind of had to, I blew that. One of the things that um, I love about my wife is that when I've messed up, she's not really much of a nagger. She doesn't like, mm, should have done this, you know. She does the unthinkable. She prays for me, and that is just really not fair, and she asks God to reveal that situation so that she doesn't have to bring it up, and, <laughs> and doggone it, we'll be walking and praying, and all of a sudden, I'll be like confessing this, and then I just look at her, she has this little smile on her face, doesn't say a word, just keeps on working, and I hear her mutter under her breath, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, honey, you're awesome. And then how about just being honest in little things? Just be honest in the little things. Don't minimize. Let's just be honest. Number three, instead of murder, let's be a life giver. Let's be a life giver. Jesus says, Jesus says He's the resurrection. He's the life, John eleven twenty five. 25. Um, and so we can be life givers. The ultimate way that we are life givers, besides you know, looking after for people who can't look out for themselves, whether it's the elderly or the, the innocent, the unborn, um, is by sharing the gospel. Because the ultimate life-giving news isn't anything we do, it's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So the ultimate life-giving is giving people the great news of the gospel. Next, instead of, of, of taking revenge, let's offer forgiveness. Let's offer forgiveness. 
Forgive others even when you've been wronged, even when you want to hold that grudge. Someone said, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. You see, when we don't forgive and we harbor all this stuff, it's going to hurt you. Someone said, if you're going to hold a grudge, build, you know, dig two graves, one for you and one for the other person, it's going to tear you down. Jesus is the ultimate example of forgiveness, isn't He? He's on the cross, Luke 23, 34, Father, what? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He said, yeah, but I'm not Jesus, so I don't have to forgive like that. Yeah, you do, because it's good for you. It's good in our hearts to forgive. And you say, what about people who have really messed, up, messed me up? Well, Jesus says, love your enemies. Matthew 6, 43 to 47, love your enemies. Yeah, John, but you don't know the extent of the hurt, the woundedness. Let's just kind of list all the things where in this church we could potentially be really wounded and hurt. You don't have to raise your hand every time or even some of the time. Ever been fired unjustly at a job? Wounded, hurt, put your family in financial distress. Anybody had a spouse that was unfaithful to you or left you or divorced you? How about somebody who stabbed you in the back because they gossiped or they shared a confidence that then the whole world heard about? Or maybe your best friend just quit talking to you and you just drifted apart and you don't know why. Or maybe you have a family member, you, no matter what you say, no matter what you do, they cannot be appeased. They kind of give you the silent treatment every time you're around them. I mean, there are plenty of examples of why it's easy to hold a grudge, but I am telling you, to the degree you can let go of it, you're going to be a better person for it. You say, now wait a minute, what about Cloud and Townsend and boundaries and how does that all play in? Well, clearly... There are times where you've got to remove yourself from harm's way. But I do, even with all the discussion of boundaries, here's one that will tweak you theologically. Jesus still says, turn the other cheek. So there is something about righteousness and suffering, and yet I, I clearly believe that the Scripture, I would never, for instance, counsel someone who's in an abusive relation to keep getting beat up. I, just no way. But I do believe that there's a forgiveness piece. And the one thing that we sometimes think that if I forgive, then I'm going to forget about it. Well, I'm telling you that that's pretty unlikely that you're ever going to, especially if it's a huge hurt, that you'll, quote, forget about it. You'll forgive that person. And maybe you'll, you know, create some boundaries that help you from being in that situation again. But you are commanded to forgive. Holiness. Holiness. Instead of evil, let's substitute holiness. Jesus is righteous, 1 John 2.29. If you know that He is righteous, just as He is righteous, 1 John 3.7. The church is called to be holy, 1 Corinthians 1.2. And again, I'm reminding you, we can't be holy in and of ourselves. Our righteousness is in Christ. Sixth, instead of perjury, we can be an advocate. If Satan's the accuser, let's be the advocate. Jesus is our advocate, 1 John 2, 1. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Thankfully, Jesus stands with us. When Satan's whispering in your ear that you are and you can fill in the blank or you are not and fill in the blank, thankfully, Jesus says, no, 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 I got this one. I've paid for it. I've covered it. I was telling the high school kids, I know I was preaching, but I was talking to the high school kids last hour 
that the, the one time in my, my church life where I really felt like Satan was accusing me or where I was kind of not sure was when I was in eighth grade going into ninth grade. You see, I became a Christian on January 8th, 1963. I've told you that story before. It was in first grade, Christian school, the whole deal. But you go through that kind of Christian school experience, and you kind of take it for granted. And all of a sudden, it hit me like a, a ton of bricks. I was going into high school that ninth grade year. It was eighth grade, and I had this overwhelming sense of dread and doubt. There was a week of meetings. There a speaker every night, and I, I was going to him. And one of the messages was, are you sure that you're saved? Are you sure that you're a Christian? And I had all these doubts. And I remember walking outside, and um, I'm a pretty, if you don't know me well, if you're new to the church, I am an emotional beanbag. I just, I want to admit it. I'm secure in my masculinity, but man, I cry at Hallmark commercials. I mean, I'm, I'm a mess, all right? And I, and, I, and I go outside, and I'm just saying, God, if you're real, I think I, I, I know I trust you as Savior, but I don't feel it. And I, I had these doubts, and I kind of planted a stake in the ground. And so if I didn't understand what I did and made in that decision as a six-year-old Lord, today as a 14-year-old, I am trusting in you alone for my salvation. And I kind of planted a flag. And then anytime I ever had those doubts from that day forward over this last 40-plus years, hey, the price was paid 2,000 years ago. It was initiated on January 1963, and if that one wasn't good enough, I got a backup plan in, in, in eighth grade. Jesus Christ, I reaffirmed that commitment. And I don't know about you, but sometimes your own past stuff, your junk, your sin, that disgusting thing that no one knows about, you beat yourself up over it, and yet God's forgiven it. He's washed it. He says your sin is as far as from the east is from the west. And that is good news. That is great news. Jesus Christ is your advocate. And then lastly, instead of gossip and disunity, how about being a peacemaker? Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the peacemakers. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And so peace is so important. In the body of Christ, let's just agree that we're going to believe the best about each other, not assume the worst. One of the things that where Satan really wins is when there's disunity in the body of Christ. And every church goes through phases where that just, there isn't peace. And I can just tell you that when there is peace in the body of Christ, the world perks up because every organization has conflicts. But they'll know we're Christians by our love and by that peace. And then I'll close with this, 1 Corinthians 14, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, the last slide, uh, I put a chart together for you, and it, it's not in your notes, but on the back table there, if you're one of those guys like, I missed all those verses, there they are. And it kind of illustrates Satan, Jesus. It, they're, they're, they're opposites. Satan lives the lie, but Jesus lives the truth. Satan is the embodiment of pride and lying and murder and tempting and being the evil one, the accuser and confusion. But thankfully, Jesus is the one who gives us the example of being humble, truthful. He is the resurrection life. He forgives. He's holy. He is our advocate and ultimately the only true giver of peace. Amen? Amen. Amen.
would you bow your heads and, and close your eyes? And I want you to think with me for a second. It's you and Jesus. And clearly we know that some of those seven things God hates creeps into our life. So what I want you to do today is admit to yourself, yeah, maybe this one's kind of creeped in in my life. But I don't want you to beat yourself up over it. But I want you to realize that you can run to Jesus, that ultimately He is the great healer of your soul. He is the, the forgiver, the redeemer. For those of you who are hopeless, He gives you hope. For those of you who are discouraged, He will give you courage. For those of you who are distressed and anxious, He says, I'm there. For those of you who feel all alone, He says, you're not. And on and on and on in Scripture, Jesus will meet you. And if today you've kind of maybe been focusing on something in your life that's bringing you down, and today you've been reminded that Jesus is the one who will lift you up, and you need to let go of something and allow Jesus to take it, would you look at me? Just you and me, okay. Jesus is the one who can take it, okay, okay. Okay, okay. It's not easy, is it? Oh, Lord, I pray that in these moments that you would help us to run to you, that we know we can confess it and be done with it, but more importantly, you are this great example. We're clothed in your righteousness, not our own. And so, Lord, you we lift up and we run to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Lord, that is our prayer, that, that you would heal our sin, that as we run to you, you would make all things new. And Lord, we know you are the great provider, you are the forgiver, you're the advocate, you're the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Jesus, you are the one who made a difference in our life, and because of your death and our redemption through your shed blood, we have the ability to live for you in a way that only the world would look at and say, my goodness, my goodness. And so, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for these great folks. May you bless them in every tangible way as they seek to run to you this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.